a year for giving to missions. And as the, I read the letters tonight, uh, we were reminded of how important it is for us to be faithful and uh, all of us committed and involved in some way or another in giving to the cause of uh, missions. And so we're excited about uh, what uh, God may do this year. We uh, are blessed to be able to have taken care of all the missionaries that we took on last year, and we took on several more, added some more, and we're hoping to be able to add the ones that are going to be coming through this year. And to be able to do that, we just must be faithful and given to missions. And so our missions commitment Sunday is coming up the last Sunday of the month, but we have a couple of missionaries coming through. Uh, the McGeorge family, uh, the McGeorges went to school with Nathan and Carrie and are uh, in, have been for years in the field of Nauru. Uh, and uh, are going to be back um, with us in, on that day. Also, Brother John Landy is going to be preaching that night, and so we're looking forward to that. He's presented already, but going to have him preach for us uh, uh, that night. And then, of course, the youth uh, uh, get-together youth conference coming up uh, pretty quickly here, the uh, preaching rally, and excited about the good uh, response that we've gotten so far from that. Looks like to be several hundred young people there from all around Southern California uh, on that Saturday, just coming up uh, right around the corner. So looking forward to what the Lord's going to do there. Now we're going to finally pick back up again with uh, subject matter that we have been working on on Wednesdays. Uh, I entitled the series, God's Prevailing Work, His Church Through the Centuries. And so it's been almost two months since we we're on the subject because all those pesky holidays have gotten in the way and uh, those pesky missionaries have gotten in the way. So we're uh, finally back to our, our uh, theme, our, our study, and it's a kind of a combination, not just a Bible study, but uh, a, history, a history lesson too, if you would. God's prevailing hand, God's prevailing work through his church uh, through the centuries. And so the principles that we've been working on the principles that drive the ideals of the Anabaptists and now as we're called Baptists, uh, the principles that drive what's behind what we stand for are principles that are, are baked into the scriptures. And so uh, it follows that uh, those peoples down through the ages that have been the most concerned about faithfulness to the Bible and faithfulness to the authority of Scripture would be likely the ones that would remain closest to the principles that were established in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles in the first church. And then it would also follow logically that if you have religious and move into uh, the ideals of uh, the, that the authorities in a church or in a man, uh, then it would follow logically that such a situation would tend to pull, lead someone farther and farther from the, what, the, uh, what the New Testament church looked like. And that is the case as we've come down through the centuries that We've tried to, to, with history, make a strong case for why we uh, have, uh, have uh, uh, wanted to emphasize the importance of our Baptist heritage because it is a Bible heritage. There's principles in the scripture, the principles of the liberty of conscience, for example, the principle of uh, 
self-government of a people that have a moral uh, foundation. Those kinds of principles are found in Scripture. The, the law of liberty, as the Bible describes it, the law of liberty, these principles that extend past the individual and into the culture of the individual, into the uh, government of the in individual, these principles are the bases upon which um, the, uh, the Baptists have staked their lives. And so I want to, before we get into the, the historical aspects of things a little bit, I wanted to just lay a foundation of Bible principles of these truths that Baptists have found in the Scripture and then stood for to the place of martyrdom. And uh, so let's take a look at uh, just a few passages briefly, and then we'll get into uh, a little back, a little more background. And we're moving now into the point at which the Baptists, uh, Anabaptists, the Bible believers are moving out of Europe, are not moving out of Europe, but are, some of them are moving, migrating from Europe to the New World. And so we're going to be getting into the New World tonight a little bit, and uh, and moving forward from there in the days to come. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and uh, verse 5 through verse 9. 1 Corinthians, the, the, the idea of, of liberty of conscience, that, that we answer to God and are individually answer to God with our conscience. That's a, that's a principle of the Bible, and it's one that Baptists have have clung tenaciously to over the centuries. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 5 through 9. Though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there's but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all things, uh, by whom are all things, and we by him. Howbeit, there is not in every man that knowledge, for some with knowledge of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. But take heed. Uh, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. And of course, in the broader context, he refers to the offering of idols, the offering of meat to idols that's later sold in the marketplace. And, and uh, Christians are arguing over the, the uh, idea, is it a sin to buy that meat that we know was offered to idols and go ahead and just eat it like it's meat? And so what enters in is the conscience, the weak conscience, the weakened conscience, the conscience that struggles with that, or the conscience that has come to the place where uh, he a person with a conscience has come to the place where he recognizes just meat. It, it uh, is not a question of what it is. I'm eating it because it's meat. And so he, he, uh, he doesn't ask whether or not it's offered to idols. He doesn't care. He eats it as meat. And, the, and so with the conscience comes the question of liberty and the liberty to do things. So the ideal of liberty and the ideal of conscience is discussed here in this passage. And uh, if, you, um, if you study that out through the other portions of Scripture which we'll mention, you can see where the idea of the liberty of the conscience 
is taught in the scriptures. And so individually here, but corporately when you think of self-government. So um, looking on at another passage that uh, has the seeds of the liberty of conscience in it, let's go to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. Galatians chapter 5 verse 13. Galatians 5 and verse 13. For brethren, we have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. So the concept of liberty in the scripture, the liberty of conscience, the liberty to be free from the bondage of the law uh, is, is a principle of scripture that works well in establishing the kind of government that uh, a, a body of people can live comfortably under. And so that concept is taught over and over again in relationship not only to the spiritual aspect of liberty, but also in relationship to the laws that govern us. And th this is one example of it here. Look at James chapter 2 and go from verse 1 through verse 12. James chapter 2, James, Peter, and John over past the book of Hebrews. James chapter 2, verse 1 to 12. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For there come, uh, if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come also a poor man of vile raiment, you have respect unto him that weareth the gate clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand over there, or sit here under my footstool. Are you not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my brethren, hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Not the rich, aren't they the ones that oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called? Uh, if ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. For he that said, "Do not commit adultery," also uh, uh, he that said, "Do not commit adultery," said also, "Do not kill." Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor. So speak ye, and so do ye, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. So the concept of law and liberty are again put forth here in this passage. The idea of uh, of uh, equal justice under law. The idea in, in the setting here, it's the idea of a church where that uh, the individual that has no money is to be treated no differently than the individual that has lots of money, that both, that God is not a respecter of persons. It, it moves over, the concept moves over into self-government, into civil government, 
and the principle of liberty and conscience and equal treatment under the law are all found there in these kinds of passages of scriptures. We could go into a number of other ones. Um, the, Romans 13 talks about government and the role of government. And, um, and Romans uh, 4, uh, chapter 2 talks about, let every, or I guess it's chapter 13, down in earlier verses, says, talks about uh, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind and his own conscience. So the concepts of, uh, of governing ourselves individually and, and then governing ourselves corporately are, are certainly found in Scripture. Now you understand, too, that when these things were written, the governments of these uh, people, these persons that were writing these accounts, these apostles and Paul and others, were under governments that were anything but... Uh, but what were ideal. They were certainly a lot less ideal than our government uh, is. And so uh, we have that uh, biblical underpinning for our Baptist heritage that is carried on into forms of government. And when the opportunity comes to have part in the, uh, in the establishment of governments, it's a wonderful thing that God ordained that People that had a biblical faith had something to do, had a lot to do with our form of government. We, when we uh, finished up last time, we were talking about the Bible coming over into the English language through Wycliffe and uh, through Tyndale and Coverdale, and then the, uh, the at, at the finest, at the high point of uh, English literature, English culture, English language, at the high point uh, came the authorized version in 1611. It took about 50 years for the authorized version to become the, um, the chosen version of, of all the English people. Uh, and it was ordained of God as such, but the Geneva Bible, Geneva Bible had a, a strong position there for a good deal of time, and it was a reliable Bible, but it had uh, Calvinistic um, uh, influence, and so um, the uh, authorized version came to be the prominent version not too long after it was introduced. It's, uh, uh, of course, uh, got a great history, and there's a whole, uh, there's a whole um, study to do concerning that itself, but but at any rate, the influence of the scriptures and the, the power of the scriptures in the hands of the people really was what uh, brought about the, the, some of the changes that ended up bringing uh, over to the, the, the new world these Bible-believing Christians. The Baptists and the Anabaptists in Europe and in, uh, in um, England and in Scotland and in Wales and, and in the other parts of, uh, of uh, the, the world at that, in that era were still subject, the Anabaptists were still subject to persecutions even after their hope of the reforms that were taking place, the reformers of the, of the 15th, 14th, 16th century, the reformers that uh, were, you know, um, at work in their attempt to reform the Roman Catholic Church and ended up uh, establishing their own brand. Uh, you're, you have uh, Martin Luther, of course, we talked about him in Germany, and Zwingli over in Switzerland, and John Calvin and John Knox and men of this caliber, great men, but all with the intent of taking what was already there in Romanism and just reforming it um, and ultimately finding that that was not going to be possible because of the enormous corruption in Romanism. 
and then ending up just establishing their own branch, uh, Protestantism. But uh, the Anabaptists were thrilled with the Reformation movement in the early days of it till they learned that the Protestants were not a whole lot more thrilled with the Anabaptists than the Catholics were. And so we got to talking about that and the persecutions that took place from the Protestants uh, against Baptists up to the point of even, uh, you know, killing, killing them. And so John Calvin hated the Anabaptists. In, in his uh, writings, he said Anabaptists and reactionists should alike be put to death. And he did order the uh, killing of a number of Anabaptists. Baptists uh, were persecuted in England under Henry VIII and uh, the infamous Henry VIII. So um, the persecutions took place there in London and in England, and laws, edicts were passed to, to banish Anabaptists from the kingdom because they refused the Church of England just as they had refused the uh, Roman Catholic Church. The Church of England was just another version of corruption that they'd already experienced in Romanism. So um, the, uh, the English... Uh, the English uh, Protestants were involved, but the Anabaptists were there too. The English Protestants didn't have a great deal of love for the Anabaptists in England, but weren't as, um, weren't as abjectly hateful as some in Europe were. So you had in Europe the separatists uh, who, um, were, who had pulled away from the Church of England and were establishing separate congregations. They were the roots of the Congregationalist movement. You have, you have today those churches called Congregational churches. They came out of this, out of England, uh, separatists from the Church of England, but still practicing some of the doctrines of the Church of England who, whose doctrines relate back to uh, Catholicism in many respects. So that was going on, but then there were also... Um, there were also the Puritans as well. There were the separatists and the Puritans. And in some senses, the separatists were a subset of the Puritans. But the Puritan uh, persons were ones that just wanted to try to purify the church of England and, and make it, uh, you know, holy and godly. And so the Puritans were very influential in England uh, and were, were very, they were very well educated. Uh, the Puritans were had put a great emphasis on uh, education. And so it was these uh, seeds that were the background in Europe and England of what uh, happened in America with the, the Baptists. The Baptists were, were uh, there and persecuted in England, persecuted and went to Holland, went to uh, Netherlands and, and established as healthy churches and communities there. Uh, and then were, were persecuted there. So the Baptist people saw the new world as did others. Saw the new world as an opportunity perhaps to go and finally have the freedom of conscience, the freedom of religion that they longed for. And so it was that uh, Baptists were sca well scattered among the uh, colonies in the early days of the formation of our nation before it became a nation. So while it was still, you know, uh, the 13 British colonies, there were Baptists aplenty in, the, in those places. They didn't get the recognition and they didn't have the opportunity that the groups from, uh, that were somehow connected at one time to the Church of England did. They, they had none of those 
uh, amenities, none of those blessings, none of the government help, none of the uh, protection that these other groups enjoyed. They had none of that. But they were there, and they were found in homes, and they were found in gathering places, and they were found where they could meet, when they could meet, and they were still viewed with a suspicious eye by the, uh, both the Catholic elements in the colonies and the Protestant elements in the colonies as well. So um, uh, on down we go. Christopher Columbus, of course, had uh, opened up the New World. He'd made several trips over, but he, uh, he was uh, part of Portugal and Spain. His interest was for the Spanish uh, king, uh, for the queen and king of uh, Spain. And so his, um, his influence was for Roman Catholicism. He brought in his second trip over, of several trips, he came to the New World, the second trip over, he brought a group of friars and priests to, with the object of trying to convert the, um, the uh, residents, the, uh, the population of the New World. And so that was his contribution in those days. This was uh, in the, of course, uh, early part of, uh, late part of the 1400s, early part of the 1500s. But uh, actually the first pilgrims in America were not the pilgrims we think of. Uh, in you know the uh, with the Mayflower and the Mayflower Compact and and the Plymouth Rock and so forth like that, the first actual pilgrims were uh, were Christians. They were French. They were Huguenots. Now these this group called the Huguenots in France were converted. They were believers in Scripture. They were sympathetic to the Anabaptists, and the Anabaptists were uh, were in some degree of of uh, fellowship with them. They were Protestant, but they were, more, um, they were more strictly concerned with biblical truth than some of the other Protestant groups were. And under persecution in France from the Catholic powers, the dominant Catholic church in France, the uh, large group of Huguenots uh, left and came to the New World, settled in uh, what's now Florida, not far from what's now Jacksonville, and they established a colony there in 15, uh, 1564. So they actually got there before the ones that we think of as the pilgrims got there uh, in 1564. And it was a thriving colony. They were doing very well. They had made peace with the local Indians and they were, uh, inter they were trading and working together uh, with, the, with, the, um, with the native population and doing very well until the uh, Edict came to have them destroyed by the Roman Catholic uh, hierarchy and the uh, and the military arm of the Roman Catholic Church uh, executed that uh, uh, that sentence and killed all of those Huguenots and killed even 300 that were shipwrecked as they were coming into that place and killed them as they were uh, coming to the shore from the shipwreck and so uh, they put them completely uh, away and they that colony was lost. But it was really the first, uh, the first set of pilgrims to come were from France, these Huguenot Christians. The pilgrims we could think of came 1620, Plymouth, Massachusetts, and they, were, they came from England and Holland, but they were the separatists. They were, and they saw themselves even more so. They were a group that had formed a congregation in Scrooby uh, in um, Holland there. And uh, they had a, uh, a church, and it was a, it was a fully established uh, local congregation of believers. And it, it was that one congregation that actually made up the, 
uh, pilgrims, their journey to the states. They were separatist independents. They had already declared independence from the Church of England. And when they came to the New, Wor New World, they had no intention of uh, co coming under uh, the Church of England or, uh, or any other, you know, international religious group. So uh, that occurred in, in um, uh, 1620, of course. And the first Puritans out of England came not long after that in 1629. They established the Massachusetts, um, Massachusetts uh, Bay. They, they, they uh, were the uh, first uh, settlers of that area, the Massachusetts Bay area and the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the Massachusetts Bay, uh, the, the store, the trading store that you read about in history, that was all, uh, that was all Puritans there. Now, the Puritans were Congregationalists in England. They were, they were not separate from yet. They had not declared separation from the Church of England, but they had a desire to purify the Church of England. And so they... Um, because they weren't accepted in the, you know, and they did not accept much of the uh, ritualism of the, uh, of the Church of England, they established their own congregations and became quite influential in England before they were uh, persecuted and came to the, to the states. They were real involved in education. In fact, many of them had uh, degrees from Cambridge and Oxford, Westminster, and so they were very well educated in, in uh, the languages and very well uh, rounded in their, in their education. So when they came to the States, they put a great deal of emphasis on education. And the reason they gave for the people in, in their settlements needing to have an education and needing to have schools and needing to go to school and needing to have a higher education, the reason they gave that the children needed to learn to read because they needed to learn to read the Bible. And that was their desire, that the, the population would be Bible uh, literate. And so they established schools early on in their history. They were the founders, the Puritans were the founders of Yale and Harvard and other uh, what are now called Ivy League institutions. They were founded expressly for the purpose of training ministers for the gospel. And so the Puritans, they, they held uh, several truths in high regard. They were very... Um, they very much emphasized the holiness of God and the sovereignty of God. They emphasized the absolute authority of the Bible, but they were theocratic. They believed in this, uh, what they'd been raised with, this intertwining of family and church, which is good, but they added family and church and culture and society, uh, and which ends up being government, see. Uh, so... Uh, you can't have a, you can't go outside of a local church government and get into the society and the culture and continue a, an intertwining of that without some form of government that exists outside of the, you know, the laws of the local church, you know, so the, the practice of the local church. So they, that was their philosophy and their belief was that we'll, We'll, we'll build this as a shining city on the hill and, and all of the persons that are here will be a part of this great experiment and um, all of us will, you know, it, it has elements of the communal way of living. It has elements of, um, you know, just uh, blocking out the world and having our own little, uh, our own little commune. <laughs> so it has elements of that in it, which is, 
which Baptists understood was not a biblical position. So Baptists got this all the time. They got that culture uh, was not to be, you know, we were not to be intertwined with the culture uh, and the government and the government having the power of spiritual authority and giving instruction to the uh, to the churches, they they got that. They always got that, and that's why they always got in trouble. Uh, but the you know the Puritans didn't quite get it because they were Puritans because they were out of Roman Catholicism, they were out of Protestantism, and they all go went back to the same error uh, that uh, the Baptists had always preached was an error. So there there they were, and. Um, here they came to escape the brutality of the Church of England leaders. Um, you know, uh, Lund was the was the um, Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, and was was just brutal, was just murderous with the Puritans, the Separatists, the Baptists, anybody that was not to conform to Church of England. And so, uh, to escape that brutality, they come to the states, but they really end up choosing similar form of government and they ended up persecuting Baptists as well. We'll talk about some specific ones. I'll give you the testimony of some such as Obadiah Holmes and what he had to undergo as a Baptist preacher under Puritan influence. So we'll talk about that next time. But the Puritans set up this church-state situation in Massachusetts. They required every person in the, in the realm to uh, attend all services. They required taxes to support the clergy. Uh, they gave public whippings and fines and banishment to anybody that got out of line. And uh, there was capital punishment imposed for idolatry. Capital punishment was imposed upon children who cursed or struck a parent. Uh, parents, you could really keep your kids in line if you were part of the of the Puritan church there. You, you wouldn't have any problems with them. And uh, and uh, there, so capital punishment was for even cases like that. And there were cases where it was carried out against children. And so you had capital punishment for adulterers. You had capital punishment for those that were accused of being witches. In 1692, the Salem witch trials uh, took place. Twenty women were executed on charge of being witches. And so these things were some of the dark side of Puritanism, you see. And uh, severe laws were enacted by the Puritans against Baptists, Quakers, and Catholics, and any other group that disagreed with them. So really they were reenacting the same thing that they had run from, and they, but now they were the ones in power. So a very, a very bad situation. Roger Williams now comes over in 1630. And uh, he's been raised in London. He's been educated at Cambridge. He's come in under the influence of some powerful and uh, convincing separatists in England. And he's begun to believe some of the principles that they're preaching. He's looked in the scriptures and he's determined, as we uh, touched on a little bit tonight, he's determined that they're right and the Church of England is wrong. And so uh, when he comes to America, he is um, preaching in Boston, but he's preaching against these various laws requiring allegiance to the, uh, the Massachusetts group and the Puritan group and the state church and so forth. He's preaching against the idea that the um, Catholics and the Protestants had that, that the land really belonged to uh, the king and we can take it from the native peoples because they're pagans and, 
And under the law of England, the Church of England, uh, everything belongs to the king that is taken from pagans. And Roger Williams said, that's not right. You know, it's not, that's not the, that's not the right way to do this. We should, uh, if we're going to have land, we should purchase it from them, from the owners of the land, from the ones that are on the land. And so he was uh, preaching against these things. And of course, for his time, he was an extreme radical this was unheard of to hear preaching like this against the established church and against the Puritan church. Uh, this one that was, pre pre these people presented themselves and did live holy lives in many respects. And so uh, here's Roger Williams stirring up all of this trouble. Uh, and um, he comes in contact with a preacher by the name of John Clark. John Clark's a, formerly a physician like Dr. Andrade. He gets into the work of the Lord and he uh, become, he continues his work as a physician, but he is, uh, he is a, a very powerful witness for, for the independent Baptists. And so, uh, so he has influence on Roger Williams, and uh, it, is, it is reciprocal. They both work together, uh, and, uh, and they come up with, actually it's mo more the work of Roger Williams than, than uh, Clark, as far as this Providence Compact is concerned, but Clark establishes Providence Colony. When you go back to visit New England, you'll be able to go to the city of Providence, and you'll be able to be in the very places that these things uh, took place. But in 1638, the Providence uh, Colony and the Providence Compact was established, and this really was the first document uh, that established government without interference uh, in any religious matters. It was the first in a series of political uh, documents that ordained government by the consent of the governed. It's a radical principle. Government by the consent of the governed? It's unheard of. You don't let the governed uh, give your consent. You just govern them. And it was the work of kings and all the authorities that they'd ever known were authorities that by force and power held their authority, never by the consent of the governed. This is a radical thought, but it's a Baptist thought, you know, and it is a Baptist heritage that is given to our country by your forebearers, your Baptist forebearers. Why would you ever be ashamed of saying, I'm a Baptist by conviction? Why would you ever say, well, I'm, you know, more just interdenominational or non-denominational? Why would anybody ever say that, that, that knows better? <laughs> to know better is to know what heritage was paid for your freedom that you enjoy as an American today. It came from Baptists who gave their blood and their lives and their sacred honor for what you and I enjoy. Shame on anyone that is ashamed of our Baptist heritage and, and is embarrassed because there's some idiot Baptists in the world. Certainly there's a lot of idiot Baptists in the world. But, uh, you know, it, Jimmy Carter and, and uh, Al Gore and people like that, uh, Bill Clinton, don't define what a Baptist is, although they claim the name. So that's a lot of the problem, a lot of the problem. Shame on anyone that doesn't, uh, that once they understand their Baptist heritage isn't glad to identify themselves that way. I don't want to go to a store and look at all the cans and, and have the labels all taken off them so I don't know what's in them, you know. I want the label on there. That's what denomination means. It means a name, a label. I want the label on there. I want to know what's in that can. I want to know what's in the can before I buy into it, you know. And the interdenominational church and the non-denominational church takes the label off the can and says, 
it's your guess, it's my guess, it's anybody's guess what's in this can. You just come and be part of the can, you know, and you get canned is what it is. So, uh, no, no, you, you, need to, you need to understand the importance of why we're here as a nation today, why what happened this week happened, and why we still have a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. It's because Baptists made this possible. Your Baptist forebearers made this possible. And Roger Williams was just one of those, one of many of those that brought that about. The, the, the Boston court, of course, Boston and Massachusetts under the influence of the church-state situation with the Puritans, the Boston court of deputies made Anabaptism a crime. They declared Anabaptism a crime. And with this declaration, they began the practice of the church-state government in Massachusetts. It became this congregational church-state government, this Puritan uh, state government. The same court deemed that preaching that one could have assurance of salvation based on Scripture alone was illegal. It was illegal to preach that. It was illegal to believe that because they were saying that salvation could be had by the Scriptures alone and the Puritans and the Congregationalists and the Church of England and the Catholic Church all said, no, your salvation is dependent upon the church, not the scripture alone, but upon the church. And so um, that law was passed that preaching or believing that you could have assurance of salvation based on the scripture alone after experiencing the convicting power of the Holy Spirit and being born again, that that idea is a illegal idea. <laughs> Imagine that. Boston court. Boston court disenfranchised 76 men because they refused to recant that principle. 76 men and their families that had these sentiments and they were banished from Boston. They were told to leave the city and uh, go somewhere outside the bounds of the Massachusetts jurisdiction. About that time, Dr. John Clark entered on the scene. He comes over from England. He's well-educated, but he's a thorough, uh, convicted, thorough by conviction, Bible conviction, Baptist. And uh, he gets in touch with these people, finds out the situation, and uh, says, let's not start a war over this thing. Let's not, uh, let's not resort to violence as he's seen in England, and he's seen these things. Uh, he's a Baptist, and he understands that, that, that violence isn't the answer, that force and power isn't the answer. And so he says, let's remove ourselves from this place, and let's find a place that we can establish our own uh, commonwealth. And so 75 miles southwest of Boston, they come to a, an area uh, near Providence where, uh, where Roger Williams has established a colony. They come to an area near Providence, and they call it, they, they purchase it actually from the local population of uh, Indians. There's three different Indian tribes that have part in it. They purchase this area, and they name it the Isle of Rhodes. What do we call it now? Rhode Island. We call it Rhode Island now. The city of Newport is established, and in Newport is established the first Baptist church in America. Uh, it is established by Dr. John Clark. He is the uh, pastor of it, and he gathers a group, uh, ends up being uh, uh, several hundred 
by the time they're all gathered there, these 76 men and their families and others that hear about this Baptist church being formed, and they're coming, they're coming, they're coming to Rhode Island who has a covenant now that, uh, that preaches freedom of conscience, liberty of conscience. The first, the first colony established in the new world that has this principle of the liberty of conscience. And they, by the miracle of God, they were able to go to Charles II, the king of England, and get a charter that permitted them to establish it this way. I don't know how Charles missed that, but it was in the charter. And he signed, he approved the charter for them to establish Rhode Island as a, uh, as a colony that would be the first to practice the freedom of religion, the freedom of conscience, the religious liberty that we now enjoy as a nation was bought and paid for by Baptists. And uh, so John Clark there, when you go to England, when you go to New England, you'll have the opportunity to visit the city of Newport. And you'll want to go to the middle of the city and you'll want to find yourself taken back in time when you step up to the building that, the first, that is still holding services today uh, of the First Baptist Church of Newport, Rhode Island, uh, founded by Dr. John Clark all those years ago in 1638. And so uh, what a blessing it is to have a heritage like that. That First Baptist Church of Rhode Island was the first church that began to send out, send out church planters like we're doing uh, today with the, uh, uh, with the church planters that we've supported and sending them out. This church began to do that and spreading all over New England were popping up these congregations of Bible-believing Baptists that, uh, uh, that forged the foundation for the nation that we have been blessed with these 230-odd years. So thank the Lord for your Baptist heritage. Let's stop it right there. Let's go ahead and uh, have our prayer time and we'll wrap it up tonight and and we'll get into some specifics we'll tell you about Obadiah Holmes next week and what this preacher had to go through for the cause of the gospel let's go ahead and, and if you're physically able to get down to our knees and I'll uh, uh, call on a couple of folks that have prayed before to to word our prayer uh, tonight and so uh, let me ask uh, brother John uh, brother Pruitt would you start off first and uh, then uh, and then Emma, would you uh, pray after Brother Pruitt? Emma, 